Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everybody, we have news. November of 2024, we are going to Cape Cod, Massachusetts to treat folklore and evermore by Taylor Swift as sacred. I'm so excited to lead this pilgrimage. These albums are such a different space for Taylor, where instead of being about litigating a tabloid narrative that's been created around her and her life and asserting her own perspective, this was about her reinterpreting her own feelings and experiences through fictional lenses. And so we get to meet all of these characters, and some of them are like con men who fall in love with other con people. And others are like depressed middle-aged people who are like, if this is the best I can do, (laughs) work with me here. And I am so excited to sort of talk about the kind of art that you get to create when you have privacy and you're free from scrutiny and self-examination. I'm so excited to explore all of that at the beautiful auto camp where everybody is going to have a private 1950s Airstream that's been converted into like a luxury hotel room complete with your own bathroom. It's just like the best glamping situation you could possibly imagine. Which I've just wanted to glamp my whole life. I'm so excited. Everybody, this is going to be November 8th through 11th in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. You can find out more by going to readingandwalkingwith.com. 59 is the chapter in which Lizzie and Darcy tell everyone who they can about their engagement. The text tells us that Lizzie, quote, opens her heart to Jane. And Jane literally doesn't believe Lizzie. You're kidding. You're teasing. Come on, even I'm not that dumb. But when Jane finally gets it and lets it sink in, she is thrilled for her sister. Jane asks Lizzie how long Lizzie has loved Darcy. And this is where Lizzie says it, one of the best lines. I must date it from my first seeing his beautiful grounds at Pemberley. It is possible that Lizzie is joking when she tells Jane this. But it is also a little bit possible that she's not. Jane entreats Lizzie to be serious, but that's when the dialogue drops out. We never hear Lizzie's serious reply. We don't get the two sisters gushing. Lizzie's last word to Jane on loving Darcy is about her loving Pemberley. Here is Roxanne Eberly on how Austen subverts our expectations at the end of the novel. One of the things I really, I always say to my students at the beginning of an Austen class is, be prepared for me to try to undercut the notion that the marriages at the end of these novels are unambiguously romantic. They are not. And Austen signals that in so many ways, like in the way in which the conclusions are sped up. 
or really deferred, which is something she does in Emma. They're also made more complicated by various choices in like proposal or lovemaking scenes, right? There's no kisses in Austin. Um, you know, Sense and Sensibility, very famously, Eleanor runs out of the room. In Pride and Prejudice, Elizabeth refuses to look at Darcy, and it's the narrator who has to tell us how handsome and glowing he is, right? So there's so much ambiguity, and I think nowhere more than in Pride and Prejudice, where I think we're meant to take quite seriously that Elizabeth falls in love with Pemberley almost before she falls in love with Darcy. So I think that Austin is always taking, is looking at the marriage plot with like a microscopic and critical eye. Now that Jane knows, it's time for Lizzie and Darcy to tell Mr. Bennett. Darcy follows him into his library. Lizzie is horribly nervous and goes in after Darcy to talk to her father herself. Mr. Bennett is incredulous at the match. He asks, quote, are you out of your senses? He will allow that Darcy is rich, but he is worried about his daughter. He says, your lively talents would place you in the greatest danger in an unequal marriage. You could scarcely escape discredit and misery. My child, let me not have the grief of seeing you unable to respect your partner in life. He doesn't say it, but what he's saying is, like me. Lizzie, to convince her father, tells him of all Darcy has done for the family, and Mr. Bennett finally is convinced. The last person to tell in this chapter is Mrs. Bennett, who does ask once, is it true, but is all too ready to believe that her daughter will marry someone who is bringing in 10000 a year. It is all she can think about. In chapter 60, now that Lizzie has told her people, she's relieved and is ready to flirt with her fiancé again. She asks Darcy to tell her when he loved her for the first time. Lizzie's theory is that it was her impertinence that made him love her. They go over some past moments. In what I think is the most romantic part of the novel, they have this conversation. Lizzie starts. I was embarrassed. So was I. You might have talked to me more. A man who would have felt less might. They then realize that they have letters to send to their respective aunts. Darcy needs to write to Lady Catherine, telling her he is engaged, and Lizzie to Mrs. Gardner, that Mrs. Gardner was right about her and Darcy. We know that Lady Catherine, the witch, is going to be livid, and Mrs. Gardner, who we all love, will be delighted. All is wrapping up well. Here is Aisha Ramachandran on her theory about the ending of this book, which is so quickly approaching. Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting, too, is it's about the hope that there's a one-stop ticket to, to happiness. Whether that's marriage, whether that's love, whether that's career, I think there's this like profound desire that, you know, I make this happen in my life and then everything else will fall into place, right? I mean, Austin, of course, knows that's not true, but she gives us a novel that holds out the possibility that that is true. And I think that's really part of the enduring appeal. And and to me, that makes Pride and Prejudice deeply moving and a novel that I still very much love because what it's 
really about in some sense is not about marriage and not about love and not about fulfillment. It's about a desire for shoring up our lives in ways that will just make them secure and happy and let us be who we want to be, right? And that's a moving thing. Even Mr. Bennett gets to write to his favorite correspondent, Mr. Collins. So at least Lady Catherine will have a great minister to console her when she gets the news. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is Live from Pemberley from Hot and Bothered. Lauren, this part, like, I was embarrassed, so was I. Doesn't it remind you of Do You Love Me and Fiddler on the Roof? I was nervous, so was I. (laughs) Not only does that moment remind me of Fiddler on the Roof, but my kid, Sam, was recently in a high school production of Fiddler on the Roof. And as I was in the middle of watching it, I realized this is an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. And I thought, someone must have also thought of this, right? The five daughters, the unsuitable suitors, the relationship between Tevya and his wife. And lo and behold, there are a number of critical essays that are that examine how Fiddler on the Roof is very much a retell of Pride and Prejudice. I couldn't believe it had never occurred to me before. So you, my dear, are a genius. <laughs> that is wild. It never would have occurred to me. I freaking love this. And I le- like I couldn't read this interchange without thinking about Golda and Tevya. <laughs> like I just ugh. Wickham, like the ultimate Cossack. Anyway, we just, (laughs) this has become the most Jewish conversation about Pride and Prejudice on tape ever, but, you know, we come by it honestly, everyone. Well, I love thinking about Fiddler on the Roof and Tevya, actually, because Tevya's biggest concern for his daughters is their economic independence, right? And Even though Mrs. Bennett performs her concern in that way in a far more sort of fluttery way that we can be super misogynistic about, that in the end is her only real concern, right? Is she wants her daughters to have economic independence. And her thrill about Darcy may be performed in a way that can feel a little distasteful. I mean, that 10,000 a year, but that is, in fact, the assurance and the insurance that she has been looking for from the very first page of the book. And one of the things that she talks about and talking about is she lists all the things that Lizzie will get as Darcy's wife is one of the things that she talks about is pin money. This is a phrase you may have heard before, or you may not have, but erroneously, many people think that it is literally the money that is used to purchase pins, or at least that that was the origin of it. This is not true. But it did come to mean that this was essentially the allowance that a wife was given where she would not need to report to her husband about what she was using it for. And it was to be used for luxury. So not groceries, not household management, which she would also be responsible for managing the finances of. But this was just a little bit of money that was her own. And it actually became a topic of concern because as women were, you know, really making strides to become equal wage earners, 
the notion that women were just working for, you know, bibs and bobs for a little bit of pin money is something that really needed to be fought in society. So the suffragists would speak out against the concept of pin money, the notion that women would be clerks just so they could buy little bits of fashion or perfume or something that would be a little indulgent. It, it really stuck around, and as did even the phrase pin money clerk, right? That was a woman who worked who didn't have to earn a living. And a lot of our discrepancy in wage, a lot of this equal pay situation that we have yet to resolve is actually anchored in this notion of pin money, the notion that women don't actually have to work. They're just doing this to supplement something, whereas men actually need to earn a living for their family. The idea was that women shouldn't be paid as much as men for these reasons, but also that women were taking labor from men who needed the labor to make a living. And so, you know, we were just screwed either way. And so that's my story about pin money. I remember my grandma had like a a petty cash jar in her kitchen and it was money that she sort of squirreled away from my grandpa. She had a credit card and she could buy whatever she wanted on the credit card. And she bought a lot of things she did not need. But he saw all those charges. And if if she ever wanted to pay for something that she didn't want my grandpa to know about, right, like she had to sort of extort money from herself, right, like skim money off herself because women were not allowed their own credit cards and men were. So she was on his credit card and he had his own credit card that she didn't get to check. And this is in the 60s and 70s. And I remember it in the 80s. It's wild. Oh, I have a friend who stopped hiring a house cleaner and just started paying herself to clean the house so that there was $200 every other week that she would just put in an account that her husband would never see. And she was the primary wage earner of their house. So these things are are really deeply ingrained in us. And in terms of the sort of surveillance over household spending, I mean, even long before we had plastic credit cards, you know, a woman would still have to keep accounting books of all of her household expenses, whatever was going to be spent on furnishings, on food, on all of the things that, you know, were obviously under her jurisdiction. And then her husband would check over those account books. So even though there was some sense of independence and agency, it still was in this very patriarchal system in which you were just subservient to whatever your husband was going to say when he looked at your account books. So in terms of economic independence, this thing that Mrs. Bennett wants for her daughters, this thing that in many ways this book is about in the end, as much as it's about romantic love or coming of age or anything else, it is really the pin money, which is the only place that a woman could have that a man couldn't touch or tell her what to do. I mean, and we just know this is where women save money to leave their husbands, right, in abusive situations. This is where women squirrel away money for for things that their husbands won't approve of. And it's such a beautiful moment to a large extent that Mrs. Bennett is like, think of the pin money, right? Like, think of the freedom you are going to have. I also think that when we talk about men and money, That seems to be like some solid structure. And when we talk about women and money, it's often around materialism, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that we think of Mrs. Bennett, I don't don't know who this we is that I'm talking about. I can imagine a reader (laughs) reading 
Mrs. Bennett, as Jane Austen has written her, and thinking of her as just this totally frippery, obsessed, materialistic little goose, instead of thinking, oh, if we were recasting this for gender differently, this would look really different. And in fact, in studies of those account books that I was talking about, you know, looking at account books from that time about what men spend their money on for a household, they tend to be very extravagant things, whereas women tend to spend their money on what we think of as the necessities. And those those extravagant things are just considered, you know, what you do if you're the lord of the manor. I think that if we were to consider the things that men would buy on their trips while women were, you know, physically constrained to the home in such a different way, they would make the things that Mrs. Bennett is talking about look like nothing. Yeah, I'm obsessed with this question of like the arc of Mrs. Bennett. And I think it, you know, it depends on whether or not we think that that opening sentence of the novel is making fun of her for being the kind of person who would think that, is she the voice of this gaggle of women that Austin is poking fun at? Or is she like the ultimate victor, whoever this woman is, who says the opening sentence? Because it's absolutely true. Bengali and Darcy, you know, were in want of a wife. But I think it's so sneaky of Austin to clearly write her in a way where you are supposed to be laughing at her the whole time. And yet you're implicated in the end because she's kind of an oracle who's speaking truths. But does Austin ever let us get that feeling about her? I mean, you know, one of our central questions through this whole season was thinking about, like, who Austin is making fun of, who Austin considers to be ridiculous, what that ridiculousness is teaching us. And the character who she writes with the ultimate ridiculousness straight through to the very end is Mrs. Bennett. And even when Mrs. Bennett is saying things that, you know, you and I have sort of stripped away the bluster to find the wisdom inside, that bluster is still there. The things that we find distasteful about her remain. And I wonder what Austin's doing there. Like, what is the purpose of that ridiculousness? And who who is it serving? Why does it define this character? I mean, she could have written this woman in so many different ways, or even given her moments of like real clear redemption. I mean, maybe the plot is the redemption. Yeah, yeah. I am saying that I think that the plot is the redemption. And what I think Austin is potentially saying, right, is these women come off as ridiculous because some of them are ridiculous and some of them are just put in impossible situations. And what do you expect from them? I think that Austin would have hated being in the room with with Mrs. Bennett. I think Austin knew Mrs. Bennett's and found them insufferable and yet thinks that they're right. <laughs> and I, like, I, I certainly know people like that, right? Just because I don't like you doesn't mean that you're wrong. I mean, if this is a book about like, you can't tell anything about a person based on your first impressions of them. I love that one of the tricks she pulls on all of us, right? On, on me until this reading, until reading one chapter at a time, so slowly, in conversation, she's going to leave you being wrong about Mrs. Bennett. And, like, that's her trick. But I think she had to know what she was doing. She just had to. I know her total resistance to heroes and villains, you know, the fact that Wickham is in her entire of the closest that she's ever gotten to, like, a one-note character, and even he has a complicated backstory, her her commitment to how complicated people are, how multi-layered they are, how, 
how they change, how they present themselves, how nuanced we all are. It's quite extraordinary. And I do think it is like it's one of the great things that separates literature from a political argument. And so we've talked a lot about about her feminism. Mary Wollstonecraft has certainly come up a lot. You know, we've talked about what arguments she may or may not be making in this book. But at the end of the day, it's a novel. And what she cares about is nuance. What she cares about is complication, even within a system that she's trying to skewer. It's really quite admirable, I think, and quite extraordinary. Yeah, and she's also of the people who we watch find out, Jane, Mr. Bennett, and Mrs. Bennett. She's the one who believes Lizzie the fastest, right? It's rhetorical. She says, good gracious, Lord bless me, only think, dear me, Mr. Darcy, who would have thought it? And is it really true? And it just seems selflessly positioned at least first, right? Like, she is going to go tell the Lucases and be so excited about gloating. But her first instinct is like, yes, my daughter is okay. Think about how okay she's going to be. It's like similar to like how parents feel when their kid gets into a really good college, right? It's first, oh my God, they're going to be okay. Whether or not it's true about Lizzie being okay with Mr. Darcy because he might be an abusive jerk and whether or not it's true that a good college is a pathway to a, you know, good middle class trajectory. There's this feeling of relief and excitement. And then, oh, and also I get to go tell the neighbors. Also, I get to brag. I think this is a woman who's genuinely outraged by the entail and genuinely worried about her daughters. But don't you think she's also genuinely obsessed with status? And I think that, you know, the examples about a good college and her thrill that Lizzie will now be okay. I don't know. I I think that I am not willing to separate that from her own need to have that status conferred upon herself. I feel like we feel that throughout the whole book. And that also is like sort of a systemic question, right? It's not like you can get these things without status. You can't separate economic security from the whole class question in this England or frankly, you know, our current England or our current United States. Like this is part of the whole game. What does it mean to live within that system of inequality? What are you actually valuing? I find her, like Mr. Collins, obsession with status to be something that to me transcends just a desire for her kids to be okay. But no one is pure, right? Lizzie in part loves Darcy for Pemberley and Darcy in part loves Lizzie because she's the only one who's going to tease him. Maybe Jane is pure, but Austin laughs at Jane's purity. Everybody is working multiple angles here. And I that also seems just accurate to me that like it's easier to fall in love with a great guy when you're like, I get to live here, <laughs> right? Like that's helpful. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It's funny, though, right, as we are potentially learning that her family is lovely in certain ways, Lizzie has just been on an upward trajectory throughout the entire novel of finding her family more and more vulgar and more and more offensive. And part of that is really like at its crux in these chapters because she's seeing her family through Darcy's eyes 
And I, again, I like don't think that the text necessarily thinks that that's great of Lizzie, right? I just think it's an accurate representation of when you bring a boy home and you're like, oh my God, it's so embarrassing that my mom doesn't wear a bra when she comes down to breakfast. And I think that this is a, it's an interesting Bildungsroman moment because to me, this is a sign that Lizzie is still young, right? Like my parents can't embarrass me in front of Peter anymore. I just have like extricated myself enough on an ego level that I'm like, nah, you're embarrassing yourself in front of Peter right now, right? But like my ego is not tied to them. Whereas like Lizzie's 20. Oh my God, was my ego tied to them at 20. And of course, that's developmental, right? The embarrassment is how one separates. And this is the moment in which she is really finally separating from her family. And I'm I'm imagining what that separation must have been like when, as we've talked about before, your whole life is so much your family that you're literally sitting in a room with your family for your whole life. <laughs> you're in the house, you're in the drawing room, meals are all taken together. I mean, it's it's a life where you have no independence from your family at all. You can't even go take a walk hardly. And so to move outside of that home into a different person's home, to leave that family, to create your own is such a significant thing. And so I, I think it makes sense that this is a moment in which she is, is pulling away even more. Which, I mean, I think beautifully leads to the sentence we want to look at closely, right? Mr. Bennett sees himself as handing Lizzie over to another man And there's this sentence, right, where he says, I know your disposition, Lizzie. I know you could be neither happy nor respectable unless you truly esteemed your husband, unless you looked up to him as a superior. I know that it's just that this sentence doesn't age well (laughs) and like I am bringing my modern sensibilities onto a text that is over 200 years old that it rankles and it is just like, we know that this tradition of a father giving a daughter away, it's like, okay, she's not my responsibility anymore. Here, I've given you her hand. She is yours. And it feels like this is a verbal giving away of Lizzie that he's like, ah, I feel okay about it because he is your superior. It's funny. doesn't rankle me in quite the same way. I mean, I, of course, cringe like there's a moment of like that word superior feels super gross. But I also think that we do want to be with people who we admire and who we sort of aspire to live up to, especially in long term relationships. That degree of of respect I don't know if I would use the word superior. I mean, okay, I would totally never use the word superior, (laughs) but I do think that it is circling a concept that while there is certainly a patriarchal element in it, I think there's also just a father's love who recognizes that Lizzie is someone who wants to be challenged and wants to grow and wants to admire and that he needs her to be partnered with someone who is up to the task and deserving of her. Yes, that's a very generous read and you're probably right. And I I think that we all deserve to be with someone who we look up to and also to know like, but there are things about me that they should look up to, right? Like they know more about this and I know more about that. And so we are a good pair in this way. But to me, what is 
in this text, and maybe this is because of a sentence that comes later, right, where Mr. Bennett will say, if this be the case, he deserves you. I could not have parted with you, my Lizzie, to anyone less worthy. The implication to me is that he kind of believes that he's been worthy of her, that he's like, I couldn't have parted with you unless you were going to someone who was going to treat you as well as I have. I'm like, but you've sucked. It seems a little self-congratulatory to me. It's funny. I just read that as I love you the most and I couldn't stand you being with anyone who wasn't deserving of you. And he is. But I think within that, there's another word that I think is worth looking at, which is like some of Mr. Bennett's baggage, which I find really interesting. And it's when he says, I know that you could be neither happy nor respectable if you weren't with someone who you look up to as a superior to anyone less worthy. And that word respectable is really interesting because I wonder if what he's saying, it does seem to me that what he's saying is, unless you were with someone who really did it for you in this way, there's no way that you weren't going to step out. There's no way that you weren't going to find that love elsewhere. There's no way that you would have been satisfied within this marriage. You would not be a respectable wife unless you were with someone who you felt this way about. And because he does not respect his partner, it makes me think, oh, Mr. B, <laughs> there's definitely been something going on here in, in the Bennett household that has been kept under wraps. Like, he's definitely been stepping out on Mrs. Bennett, and he doesn't want that sort of dishonest, secretive, furtive life for his daughter. That's what I see in that word. I love your read. I don't see that as obvious in the text, right? I think that on its face, the sentence to me is like, I am not respectable because I am married to a ridiculous woman and that has made my life harder. And so I just sit alone in my library and I want you to go and be respectable in the world. It's a curiosity to me, that word, respectable. Absolutely. It changes the sentence from how Lizzie would feel to how the world would feel about Lizzie. And it's an interesting second word that you absolutely are like, oh, respectable. I agree. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, listeners. This is Naomi Westwater. You may know me from my previous classes at Not Sorry. I'm dropping into your feed today to let you know about an upcoming course I'm running starting March 17th called Creating Daily Ritual, Tarot as a Sacred Practice. In this course, I will teach you about the history and meaning of the cards in the Rider-Waite-Smith tarot deck and model how they can be used as a tool for self-reflection and creativity. Through lecture, discussion with your classmates, and solo journaling, I will aim to help you develop your individual connection with tarot, this ancient tool for meaning-making. If you're looking to elevate your daily ritual, please join me starting Sunday evening, March 17th, for six weeks of habit-building, learning, and community. Head to notsorryworks.com for more information. 
and be sure to check out our sliding scale pricing and scholarships listed on the website. That's notsorryworks.com. So Lauren, what do you make of this Lizzie and Darcy conversation where she's like, you only like me because I mean to you? I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I mean, I remember when we were doing on air our season on Shane Air and we would talk about the things that we would tattoo on ourselves during every episode. And I just want like a big tramp stamp that says impertinent. (laughs) (laughs) You love me for my impertinence. Right. Trust me. It's delicious. It's the stuff. (laughs) Well, and what she has said is like, I love you because of the woods that you have. And you love me because I'm a smart ass. And it's the most cynical version of their love. But I think that it is 10% true. He loved that somebody was willing to tell him to shove it. And she loves that she's going to get to go on long walks and ride ponies with Mrs. Gardner in the Phaeton. And all of that is true. It is also performed with like a sexual charge. And like, that's the question. How how do we know what the compatibility is going to be of these two people who we've decided need to belong together, right? Like they haven't even smooched yet, much less like got naked. And I feel like there's an energy in this conversation, which is like, oh, Lizzie's going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just love this, right? Who wouldn't be in love with Lizzie? She wanted Mr. Darcy to account for his ever having fallen in love with her. How could you begin, said she? I can comprehend you're going on charmingly once you'd made a beginning. <laughs> like, obviously, once you decided, you're right, I'm totally a get. And it's a downhill, greased slide into loving me. But how'd you start? How'd you get on the slide? That's freaking hilarious. I love her. I also love that, like, you know, Austin doesn't bother to give us the real proposal moment, right? That's just an aside, basically. But she goes into such detail in this moment in terms of their chemistry, because that's what matters. A proposal is a proposal. But to have accepted that proposal and have this flirtation possible once the deal is sealed, it's like, this is the stuff. And I love Darcy, right? She says, you admired me for my impertinence. And he says, for the liveliness of your mind. And like, what else do we want in a partner than for them to take something that we don't totally love about ourselves and reframe it and be like, are you too emotional or are you someone who really responds to the world, right? Are you impertinent or do you just have a great mind, yeah, I just think that there's a lot of evidence that two, the two of them are going to be just fine in this little conversation. That moment where she says, Jane only smiles, I laugh, as her proof that she's happier in her coupling than Jane is. That guarantee of laughing, that that feeling of having chosen a man who can crack her up as the key to happiness. It's like some of the best advice Jane Austen could ever give us. And it's so delightful. And, you know, there's that moment where Jane 
asks Lizzie, like, how did you know? When when did you realize that you were in love with him? And Lizzie says, I, I was I was in it. I was in the middle of it before it even occurred to me. And then that sort of rhymes with this moment in the Lizzie Darcy conversation in which she says, so when did you know that you loved me? And he really says the same thing, that he was already loving her before he realized that he did, which seems to be an observation about maybe how we experience the onslaught of real love or not. I don't know. What do you think? I think it's an argument that this is a pure love because there were no designs, to use Charlotte's word, right? That Charlotte and Mr. Collins are going to know that they love each other very late. And Jane looked at Bingley, who was presented to her as a potential husband, and was immediately going in curious, am I going to love him? Am I going to love him? And so might be able to tell you the exact moment because it was this great relief that she actually did. But Lizzie and Darcy... There was like no agenda, right? He was able to withstand her handsomeness at one point and then was like, oh, never mind. She has fine eyes. And I think the lack of intention and the lack of design is what Austin is celebrating here. I don't think she is condemning people who do have designs, but I think she is articulating one of the things about no designs going in. It's also been such a trope through so much of literature to this point to have that love at first sight moment, right? Cupid's bow or, you know, all the different ways that like Shakespeare foists the moment of love struckness on his characters. But there is something that feels really true and real and maybe more modern and realistic in certain ways about what it takes to make a lasting love, like a, a love that could sustain a family. And that that's also a very mature type of love for a mature relationship. It feels like she's definitely she's definitely thinking about about what long-term happiness looks like and about what it means to grow together. Lauren, we finished the book next episode. That's wild, isn't it? It's hard to believe. I'm going to have a hard yeah. time letting go of them. Yeah. No, they're fun. They're real fun. And of you. Don't ever let go, Jack. <laughs> So we are coming to the end. We are coming to the end of this book about love. So I'm thinking about love and how this book has shaped what we consider romantic love, but also thinking about how that kind of love takes such center stage and how so many people think about this book. But in fact, it's just one of the types of love that Austin has written for us, right? Sisterly love is crucial and an aunt and niece's love as well. And of course, the long, resilient arc of love between friends. So I would like to call a friend who is so much more than that. Sharon Marcus is the Orlando Harriman Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia. She's written so much, including a book called Between Women, Marriage, Desire, and Friendship in Victorian England. And more recently, the great book, The Drama of Celebrity. She's written for The New York Times and The Wall Street Journal and she co-founded the magazine Public Books, and I can go on, but let's call her to talk about love. Hi, Sharon. 
Hi, Lauren. So Sharon, I'm so curious if you think that we are kind of missing the forest for the trees here, all those Pemberley woods, right? Getting in the way of of these other types of love. Do you think that we are missing something by thinking about Pride and Prejudice as a romance novel? No, I wouldn't say that because it definitely is a romance novel. And I think that Austin understands as a realist that in the world her characters live in, women, especially middle-class women who don't have their own fortunes and who, at the time she's writing, have very few opportunities for paid employment, have to marry men. I mean, we learn really early on, Mrs. Bennett, the business of her life was to get her daughters married. And that's not because Mrs. Bennett is necessarily that invested in romance. It's a practical reality. I think Austin is a bit... uh, Hmm. In, a, in something of a vanguard in saying like, well, it doesn't have to just be a pragmatic relationship. I think we do have to credit Austin with popularizing the idea that it's realistic to expect your marriage to be a romance, which was kind of a radical idea. But where we're missing the bushes for the forest, perhaps, is that what's inspiring her to think of marriage as a romance is that I think one of the things the book suggests subtly is that in a good marriage, the relationship between the husband and the wife can be like the relationship between sisters or female friends. So in that sense, these chapters, 59 and 60, are really, really interesting because what happened in the previous chapter is what we see as the romantic climax of the book. Darcy proposes again to Lizzie, which she'd been hoping he would do, but heterosexuality, she can't say at first. So he does. Okay. But what happens immediately after is that Lizzie tells Jane, And Jane's main concern is, oh, my God, are you doing this the way Charlotte married Mr. Collins for just, you know, practical reasons? And she says, I'd rather you do anything than marry without affection. In other words, your feelings about your husband should be like your feelings about me. It should involve love, affection and respect, because that's what we learn about those two sisters early on. And then Lizzie says, I've got to tell my aunt. And she writes a long letter to her aunt and she projects that her aunt is really going to be part of her life. She's like, oh, well, just as you wish, we're going to ride the ponies around Pemberley together. So marriage is definitely not about letting these female relationships go. It's about knitting the female relationships into her marriage. So I think that this is so fascinating because, you know, I, I have been thinking about this as though Lizzie's love with Darcy is somehow separate from the way that Lizzie loves the women in her life and the way that they love her. But in fact, it sounds like the whole point of her love with Darcy is that it becomes far more not just integrated, but reflective of the way that women love each other instead of this model of how men and women love each other that we've seen with, for example, Lydia and Wickham, which is like the disaster of heterosexual love in many ways, right? This is about a love that feels far more sisterly and yet doesn't lose anything for that. It gains something for that. Yes. I mean, it's interesting to take that insight and look back at the beginning of the book at chapters three and four, because chapter three introduces 
the Bennett parents' marriage. And it actually starts by saying that Lizzie didn't really have a great model for marriage or she was going to take her parents as a model. And then we're told the problems between them are that basically they're very different and they're very unequal and they don't really respect each other. So, okay, they're not a model. And then what do we get in chapter four? We get a deep dive into the relationship between Lizzie and Jane. And it really is as though, again, it's sort of the logic of how information unfolds. It's like, okay, bad relationship between people, Mr. and Mrs. Bennett. Good relationship between people, good template for a relationship between people, Lizzie and Jane. The other thing is, if we're thinking about how relationships between men and women, if they're going to be happy, need to be like relationships between women. It's also interesting to see how women who can't relate well to other women bizarrely may end up not getting attached to a man in this novel. And the example of that is Miss Bingley, who's constantly dissing Lizzie and at novel's end is still Miss Bingley. And it's interesting because it's also not desexualizing, right? We still feel the chemistry between the two of them. There's a sense that this is not going to simply be, you know, a chaste companionate marriage. Oh, absolutely. And I think that part of what that stems from is that although Lizzie and Jane are sisters, they're presented from the beginning as being really different from each other. So on the one hand, we have the relationship between Mr. and Mrs. Bennett, who are so different and so unequal that they just can't align. They can't appreciate each other's differences. They have nothing to learn from each other's differences. So they don't, you get the sense, I mean, we're told outright, Mr. Bennett married her for her youth and beauty. And it's interesting because Jane and Bingley in getting married, I mean, they definitely are really into each other. That's kind of like, you know, there's heat there, but we're told over and over again that they're very, very similar. And basically, Lizzie says, oh, yeah, everybody's going to walk all over you because you're both so sweet and compliant. The model we have for what really makes Darcy and Lizzie's relationship kind of exciting and sexy is that they're different from each other, but they learn from each other. They challenge each other. They're willing to change. So that's why they have antagonism at the beginning, which, let's face it, provides not just suspense, but a little sizzle. But it's also how they come together because because they're different, the alignment between them actually is an event. And I think, again, the model for that would be Lizzie and Jane, who are quite different from each other. You know, one is like a satirist and the other is an idealist. And yet they share confidences, they take care of each other, they appreciate each other despite being really different. It's a great model for a healthy marriage. It's so fascinating because I have really puzzled through this season and every time I've read this book since I was a teenager about why it is that Darcy is so idealized to so many people and why this is the book that people reach for again and again and again. And I actually don't think I understood that until this moment, that it is the combination of the sisterly feeling and the sizzle, which is sort of this ideal, right? Mm. That is really, really hard to find in narratives about a couple's love. That's really interesting because if I think 
back to the classic scholarly study of the romance novel, which is Janice Radway's Reading the Romance, which focused on Harlequin novels in the 1980s and the women who read them and what they were actually getting out of them. But also Janice Radway read a lot of Harlequin novels. She basically ends up saying that the thing about the romance hero is that he combines like all the appeal of a bad boy with all, everything everybody wants from like a really good mom. <laughs> you know, which, like do with that what you will, but it's, it's sort of perverse, right? But makes sense. People want safety and danger. They want something thrilling and they want security. They want difference, but they want to feel sympathetic and copacetic. And that's what you get. I think if you take the sisterly bond as a template for a relationship between men and women in a society where men and women are so different that there's really no danger that they're ever going to be too similar. We've also, you know, pondered, as many people have, the question of whether this is a feminist book. And that's a conversation that I tend to locate in terms of economics and structural inequality, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I tend to think about the entail. I don't think about the form Mm. of love as much. And it sounds to me like what you're describing is actually a far more feminist kind of love. I think it's related to some of the questions about entail and economics. I think that brings us back to Charlotte, who's kind of a key character there, right? Because she marries, we're told, without thinking highly either of men or matrimony, marriage had always been her object. It was the only provision for well-educated women of small fortune. Which is a really important sentence because it harkens back to the beginning of the book, right? It's a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife, which of of course, it's not true. It's just what people think because he doesn't need anything, right? He'll get a wife if he wants one, but he's not in want of a wife. It's women like Charlotte who are in want of a husband. And it's such a deadly sentence. It, it's, it's typical Austin. Like the, it almost sneaks by you. It was the only provision for well-educated women of small fortune. Like what a horror. You're a well-educated woman and you have no options because your education doesn't allow you to make money. In fact, it's what would prevent you from going out to work as a laundress or a baker or a nurse. And so I don't, you know, it depends how you define feminism. If feminism is, we've got to change everything. She's not presenting as a feminist. She might be critical of the status quo, but she's not imagining any real ways of changing the economic status quo or the educational status quo, or the legal status quo. Interestingly, maybe she is a feminist in her saying, well, if the only business of a woman's life is getting married, let's at least make marriage less of a disempowering structure. Let's make marriage something that can be more satisfying. Thinking about the lasting legacy of this book and the sort of pride and prejudice industrial complex that it spawned. (laughs) There are people walking around the world at this very moment wearing t-shirts that say Mrs. Darcy on them. (laughs) Do we wish that there were t-shirts that said Jane's sister or tote bags that said Mrs. Gardner's niece? You know, does it feel like Darcy's sucked all this attention from these other elements of the book? Or does it feel like those, those other 
impulses, those other forms of love do live within this central romantic narrative and that he deserves it. It's not a world where Lizzie's going to be able to marry someone exactly like her sister in that she's not going to be able to marry a woman, not legally. I mean, there were women in this period who developed partnerships with other women and they did find ways of making money and they had cats and dogs and many of them adopted children, often the children of their siblings, especially their sisters who'd married badly. So it's not like it's impossible, but that's that's not the kind of writer Austin is. She's not writing about outliers and misfits and odd women. So, you know, I, you know, we could have those tote bags. I, I, I'm going to vote for Charlotte on the tote bag because Charlotte is the one who first gets Lizzie to talk to Darcy at the party. She dares her to talk to him, and that's what gets everything going. And Charlotte's the first one to note that Darcy must be in love with Lizzie if he's coming over so often. So I would say, like, my tote bag would be like, Charlotte made it happen, or no Darcy without Charlotte. (laughs) I love that. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Live from Pemberley. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hot and bothered rom pod. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman, and we are distributed by 8Cast. Thanks, as always, to our Jane-level patrons, Baroness Gretchen Sneegas of Breakfast Carbston, Knight Molly Reilly of Worcestershire Sauce, the Countess of Kristen Hall, Dame Leah B. of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tiaralandia, Marquess Tucker Kratt of Seltzerworth, Duchess Lauren of Tesseract, and a newly appointed Right Honorable Claudia Hammerman of Penpallium. Thanks this week to Roxanne Eberly, Aisha Ramachandran, and Sharon Marcus for talking to us. To Laura Glass, Margaret H. Wilson, AJ Aramas, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. Hi, listeners. This is Naomi Westwater. You may know me from my previous classes at Not Sorry. I'm dropping into your feed today to let you know about an upcoming course I'm running starting March 17th called Creating Daily Ritual, Tarot as a Sacred Practice. In this course, I will teach you about the history and meaning of the cards in the Rider-Waite-Smith Tarot deck and model how they can be used as a tool for self-reflection and creativity. Through lecture, discussion with your classmates, and solo journaling, I will aim to help you develop your individual connection with tarot, this ancient tool for meaning making. If you're looking to elevate your daily ritual, please join me starting Sunday evening, March 17th, for six weeks of habit building, learning, and community. Head to notsorryworks.com for more information. And be sure to check out our sliding scale pricing and scholarships listed on the website. That's notsorryworks.com.